This is Inspiring Design, where unique innovators come together to share their knowledge, share their insight, and keep us up to date with the latest industry trends. And here's your host, Rashan Senanayak. What's up, listeners? Welcome to Inspiring Design Season 3. This is where the best of the best brands, experts, change makers, and thought leaders come together to share their valuable insights, experience, and knowledge. Our goal here is to be the missing link between education, design, and the industry. Today, we have a very special guest, almost an education celebrity here in Australia, but also at a global level. Yasodai Selvakumaran. We're going to be discussing all things education, so let's get straight into it. To give you a little bit of background on Yasodai, she is the teacher ambassador for New South Wales Department of Education and relieving head teacher, professional practice and humanities teacher at Ruti Hill High School in Sydney West. She leads teacher inductions and professional learning across career levels with expertise that include subject pedagogies, mentoring, and class observations. But here's what actually makes her extraordinary. In 2019, she was a top 10 finalist for the Varki Foundation's $1 million Global Teacher Prize. She was recently awarded an honorary fellowship from Western Sydney University for a sustained and significant contribution to education in Western Sydney. So we're lucky to have her here and Yasudai, welcome to Inspiring Design. Thank you so much Roshan for having me on here. Can we start off with your story? What's your background? What's your history? Sure. Um, so I actually came uh, as a baby to Australia with my parents when they migrated from Sri Lanka. I was uh, 10 months old, that was in the late 80s, mm-hmm. uh, and they initially came to Sydney, and it was the late 80s, it was a recession time in Australia, my dad was looking for work where he could get it, and he was yep. offered a job as an engineer with the New South Wales government in a small rural town called Hay. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people in Australia, even New South Wales, haven't heard of it, it's yep. a very, very small town, about 12 hour drive from Sydney, oh, wow. um, people stop there because it's often like a halfway point between here and Adelaide if you're driving. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a sheep and farming community. And so that's where we moved. Um, and I lived until I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And so my little brother and sister were born there. My dad also brought over my grandmother, his mother, and um, two of my cousins to live with us in Hay. So they came over when they were mid-high school mm-hmm. um, and finished their schooling there and moved to Sydney. So from a very young age, I had role models, um, that basically like my big brothers, that did well um, when they actually hadn't really learnt English yeah. uh, that well, they came over and repeated and, and showed me that with hard work you can achieve success. So yeah. from there, um, my parents actually moved to Bathurst, which is a regional town, closer to Sydney, about a three-hour drive, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I finished my schooling. And I actually had the experience in Bathurst of going uh, to, a, to public and a private school for a couple of years uh, as a scholarship student. Mm-hmm. I actually changed back to public, and uh, it was there that I really realized that it's about the quality of teachers that really makes a difference and for me I was very much inspired by my teachers at that school Mm. which ultimately has led me into the career in public education that I have. Yeah and I think I completely agree with that statement when whenever I'm working with my first years at uni in week one we can tell which ones have been going through that 
really high quality education at a secondary level, whereas some people have had that misaligned one. So this is actually where I think what you said, the influence of that teacher makes a massive difference. Yes. And, you know, I had great teachers um, at all the schools that I was at, but I did see from a young age, you know, that there's resource issues yeah. and there's great teaching and it's, yeah, I, I've worked, this is my 10th year now in public education. Yeah, wow. There you go. Awesome. And so let's get straight into the Global Teacher Prize. Can you tell us a little bit about what what this award is, just to give, uh, set some background? Sure. So the Global Teacher Prize uh, is, I guess, a, receives a lot of attention because of the $1 million prize attached yeah. to it. <laughs> uh, what the Varkey Foundation have done as in five years uh, that it's been running so far, have really created a network mm-hmm. of uh, ambassadors as well. The whole idea of recognizing finalists is to show that teaching is a very collaborative profession and by identifying change makers in respective contexts they've got a, an opportunity to bring them together and to mm-hmm. amplify what they do so the top 50 are announced uh, and you know their stories are shared yeah. uh, as a top 10 finalist which I was very fortunate to be chosen as uh, we're very much uh, I guess brought together to, to really highlight those stories and yeah. we had an amazing opportunity to be in Dubai last year the award has been held in Dubai for the last five years mm-hmm. um, around a forum called the Global Education Skills Forum, of which the Global Teacher Prize um, has been the finale. But I do understand the Barkey Foundation are doing things a little bit differently this year, um, and so some more information will be coming out about that too. But the great thing about it really is the opportunity to connect with other finalists. Um, and that $1 million prize really gets everybody talking. It's been able to put a spotlight on yeah. education and the work that teachers do. And the Barkey Foundation's motto is very much, teachers matter. And we need to have teachers at the heart of really looking at how we can make learning the best that it can be. And for whatever reason, in many, many countries, teachers are left out of that conversation. And we need to make sure that we've got the people, got the expertise, working at the forefront with policymakers, with researchers, with everybody that's invested in education to be able to really make it what we can. Yeah, absolutely. This is music to my ears. So I'm loving everything that you're putting down, actually. And so... It's almost like the Nobel Prize for teachers. It has been called that, <laughs> yes, um, because yeah, the, there's there's a lot of teaching awards, um, but yeah, the, the the profile that this one has had, um, it is a very vigorous process to apply. And I, if there's any teachers out there or people that know teachers, I'd encourage you to just keep an eye out on the Varkey Foundation social media mm. and website when nominations open, just to take the time to nominate someone because I was probably wouldn't have applied if someone didn't encourage me to. Mm-hmm. In fact. I wouldn't have. Yeah. It was it was the thought that someone had taken the time to recognize um, and just got you know send you get an email saying this person's nominated you or they can remain um, anonymous. You can just apply yourself. Was it your school that helped you nominate? It was like my school and the fellowship that I was a part of in two thousand and eighteen um, right. through the Combank Teaching Awards and Schools Plus. Cool. And so through that network, that really introduced me to some international experiences in education. And part of that fellowship was an opportunity to travel to Singapore uh, for a study tour with mm. the eleven other fellows of that program. And that fellowship now is in its fourth year, and in March the fourth cohort of 12 educators will be announced too. So they've actually um, been considered as a national teaching prize uh, in terms of the Global Teacher Prize as well. You don't have to go through that program at all, um, but it is the way that for me, uh, I think, helps me really have some experiences that let me work a little bit more internationally and to and to put myself forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's, that's really cool. And obviously, that would have given you a very global understanding of what education is just going through that fellowship. It did. It, what it taught me was that 
teachers, doesn't matter what level of your career you're at, you can have a difference being going to your own classroom uh, at you know an international level, really, yeah. and to be influenced by international ideas. And that's not a new thing. The school that I work at is very much involved and uh, at, at, in a lot of things when it comes to being aware of research and practice and mm-hmm. getting ideas from state level, working on... We host a lot of school visits, for example. Uh, we have people go out and be asked to present on the professional learning that we do at our own school mm-hmm. in rural areas and interstate. And that really developed my own leadership and my interest and expertise uh, as as someone working in teacher professional learning as well as not and not just being in my own classes yep. but the uh, the prize is not necessarily about uh, one person's achievement because to be honest you wouldn't get to that level if it wasn't for all of the work that you have done mm-hmm. in teams and to have the support of those people in applying as well so in the application process uh, there, when we applied I think it does change year to year but mm-hmm. generally the criteria is looking for your innovation in, in your own classroom uh, and your success with students mm-hmm. how you uh, have promoted the profession and been a great advocate and how the work that you um, are doing, you know, can really go beyond your own classes as well. Yeah, cool. Now, before I get into the details of that and how we break down what's happening in your classrooms, I I have to ask this question. I know that Hugh Jackman announced that He did, yes. <laughs> how did that feel? Did you know about that? Uh, no, we did know that uh, every year, and this is like all on YouTube and things if you're interested, yeah. the Vaki Foundation, <laughs> they've, they've made a big deal of this by getting some very key celebrities involved. Yeah. And one of those uh, has been having a unique way of actually announcing the top 10. Mm. So, uh, you know, one year it was sort of done with like school children uh, spelling out like a name with like aerial okay. footage that was actually how the winner was announced yep. in Dubai but with the top 10 yeah there's been some very high profile celebrities uh, being called in um, to announce that yep. but we did hear that our experience uh, in Dubai was very very different uh, to previous years you know they'd had right. various celebrities like one year there was some of the members of Suits like oh, cast cool. were there on yep. the red carpet um, but for us yeah Hugh Jackman was very much the the person the host yep. the performer so he was there in Dubai he was there in Dubai yeah cool. and uh, we we kind of got wind that he may be involved when we saw a picture of him yep. in the Dubai desert like earlier in the week <laughs> and so we thought oh maybe he's here but um, yeah it was meant like I guess meant to be a surprise um, right. and uh, yeah it was only on the Saturday uh, the awards night was on a Sunday. They actually brought together a, uh, a concert and they mm-hmm. called it the Assembly, you know, in line with education themes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rita Ora, Liam Payne um, were some of the performers there. Awesome. And so we were backstage. They actually, you know, it was like being a celebrity for four days when we were there. Yep. The top ten were brought out on stage, like at a music concert, yep, you know, yep. and people <laughs> were cheering for teachers. Awesome. And it was just this incredible experience and... Uh, you know, the, the, the finalists were there as well from the mm-hmm. top 50, and we also had previous top 50 there to be our mentors. So it was a very much, you know, a very collaborative experience in those two days, but that was an unreal just... Yeah, absolutely, like, I can imagine. You know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but Hugh Jackman surprised us backstage. Right, so you did Saturday. get to meet him. Yeah, so on that Saturday, we oh were super excited, and, you know, we were taking selfies and things backstage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was actually a little bit of a contrast to then Sunday night when we, um, we knew he was hosting the awards, and we were in the green room but yeah. it was um we were all quite nervous because we all knew <laughs> that someone's life was going to dramatically change yeah, yeah. at that announcement absolutely and um yeah it was yeah so he was the one who actually announced the final person he did yes right. so he was there as well so, wow yeah an What's he amazing like? opportunity <laughs> oh he is just a fantastic 
human you know like everybody says that he's always like happy-go-lucky and really like lovely and yeah it was just amazing you know he calmed us all before we went out like yeah we were a little <laughs> bit nervous backstage and yeah. each yeah each each of us got to really have um a moment with Hugh and I think yeah just kind of came back and I was like we should all be more like Hugh Jackman that's, <laughs> that's awesome yeah, just, I love that yeah calm like oozes uh just this absolute joy yeah. in everything and managing so much I was just in awe of him hosting and performing and you know the way that he was with like his crew and with us was yeah. just phenomenal there you go shout out to Hugh Jackson shout out I'm to hoping Hugh. thank he'll... you for making that just yeah, such a special part absolutely of the prize. and I'm hoping you're going to be listening to this and who knows you might yeah. be a future guest of Inspiring well, yeah, Design I actually, I actually <laughs> took my mum to his show when he yeah. came to Sydney um, and we were we were pretty close up but you know it was dark and my mum was like maybe he'll recognise you I'm like no we should have got the other tickets <laughs> we should have got the tickets to meet him backstage <laughs> Yeah. I'm obviously a massive fan of Wolverine and that's yeah. where my love for him grew. So it's it's pretty cool. I, when I saw that video of him announcing your names, I think that's when the ball dropped for me. So that's that's amazing. So but let's get into the actual details of what your teaching practices are all about. So in your definition, what is an effective teaching practice? So effective teaching is something that in every single lesson, we've got to really think about what is it that we want our students to achieve? How do we know when we've gotten there? And what impact and shifts in our learning um, do we really want to look at? So that's really uh, an idea that I've learned from the school that I work in and from mm -hmm. our principal. It's really we need to constantly be like thinking, how are we going to know if students have gotten there? And yeah. the design of that learning, uh, depending on the focus and the context of the school, and, you know, this could be the same for professional learning or um, whatever other context in learning it is, mm -hmm. is to really think about where your students are at or where your teachers are at, you know, teach professional learning work that I do. Mm. And uh, that really very much has to guide what, what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yep. So, for example, critical and creative thinking has been a core focus uh, of what we've been doing to drive okay. other capabilities in the yep. Australian curriculum. And uh, that's taken an approach where as a teacher, you design lessons and experiment in your own classes, but you also need to then be able to work with your teams, really have an understanding of what it is that you're looking for and not to stifle creativity by any means, mm. but to have a common language around what you're doing, because that's the way that we're going to have success and to be able to shift students across the school. Yeah. And so that, that really has come from, you know, any approach that we, we have done at, at the school I work at. And it very much comes down to, you know, what is it that we want to our students to be able to do? Mm -hmm. Can we do that ourselves and asking that? And it's a constant journey of constantly learning and unlearning as educators because yeah. the things that we need our students to do is always changing. Yeah, and absolutely. we need to be able to look at ways, um, you know, UNESCO have this idea of, you know, learning how to know, do and be. Mm. Um, and that's come up in other researchers. And uh, one person that we've been looking at uh, is an American called Professor Lee Shulman. Mm -hmm who talks about educating for the professions and a tertiary context. So he's written papers, uh, especially in terms of professional preparation in law uh, and like nursing and really looking at, you know, what are those ways of knowing, doing and being or the moral, intellectual uh, and technical components of education. Yeah. How can we have equal measure on those components? And the fact that knowledge in a field changes. Mm -hmm. So what counts as knowledge in a field 
is going to be changing mm. and we need to be able to keep up with that and to be able to work backwards uh, in a secondary context, yep. really, uh, you know, in all education, but to really look at what do we want our students to be when they leave us yep. um, in terms of preparation for work, apprenticeships, uh, could be further study. Yep. But looking at um, those moral components is just as crucial. And I think assessment sometimes, especially some large scale um, summative assessments and mm -hmm. standardised testing, there's a lot of debate around how you know effective that is in mm. doing that and I think one of the tensions in education is uh, being able to prepare our students um, you know for, for these potential measures that might dictate where they go next in their life or set up their future pathways mm -hmm. but also really looking at the heart of what we want them to to do um, in our disciplines and what we want them to leave with because ultimately yeah. it's about educating the person yeah in absolutely. All components yeah yeah and if you had to now you mentioned you already mentioned a couple of skill sets like creative thinking and so on what what are the foundational skills if you had to almost list it out for the 21st century future of education or not so future current yes <laughs> um, what would you say are the foundational skills well it's interesting that we're still using that term 21st century yeah we're, we're already in it <laughs> um, but yeah it is very much aligned to capabilities and dispositions or whatever they might be called yeah. but I uh, think you know what that looks like in different subjects and disciplines it's generally, you know, it's looking at things like synthesizing, analyzing, evaluating, reflecting. Uh, but it needs to be done in a specific context mm -hmm. uh, in order to be effective. And there's a lot of debate around this, but that's that's the view that I align myself to as well. Mm -hmm. Because what critical and creative thinking looks like, for example, in my history class is different similar in some ways, but different to what it looks like in society and culture, which is an yep. introduction to sociology and anthropology at university. And again, different to what that might look like uh, in geography, because what synthesis looks like is different. In history, for example, synthesis is integrating sources, looking at bias, looking at issues of uh, whether uh, the historical interpretations have changed over time and the idea of histori historiography. Mm -hmm. In my society and culture class, um, synthesis includes integrating primary and secondary research that students have done, actually conducting their own qualitative and quantitative mm -hmm. research and data and bringing all of that together is a very different skill in synthesis. Yeah. Um, you know, not to say that one is necessarily harder than the other, mm -hmm. but it requires specific ways of thinking about those disciplines and learning and how writing, the way we communicate, um, in various things, if we're showing our expertise, look different. And I know there's been, you know, this whole arguments for, um, you know, generalist education and mm. People saying that specialization is not going to be as important, but I absolutely think that it does matter. It yeah. really does matter in the way that we introduce students to these ideas because ultimately then they're also thinking of what they're good at and what they want to want to be. Yeah. And those skills are transferable. So yes, there are generic ways of designing learning, but there's also very specific disciplinary ways of knowing, doing and being um, that we need to be able to cultivate yeah. um, and be able to show the students and adults, uh, whatever learning context it is, the connections hmm. uh, where they can take those transferable skills. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, uh, you, you mentioned about you know, giving them the adaptability and, and so do you actually spend time individually with the kids to understand their specific requirements, their background, their context? Do you actually spend time with them individually or yes. you do? So as a teacher, I guess, you know, one of the challenges is you have multiple people, um, you know, multiple students in your classes. It can be up to 30, 25, yeah. some of your senior classes might be smaller, um, just depends on what you have. But 
as a class, uh, especially in the subjects that I teach, mm -hmm. really trying to put forward to students that there is not one right answer when we're looking at issues of perspective. Yeah. It actually takes time. So some students will be like, no, but what's the right answer? And so even just to give you an example from my Year 9 history class yesterday, we were looking at the impacts of the uh, Industrial Revolution and how technology has changed over time. Mm -hmm. So I asked uh, as a reflection, you know, what technology has changed in your lifetime, mm -hmm. you know? And so how have mobile phones changed? How has the way that you watch TV changed? And have they had some guiding questions? Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of students were like, uh, but what's the answer? And I said, but what, it's, we've got some answers that we can discuss, yeah. but what, the question's got, it's about you. They so just wanted the answer straight from you. Yeah. Yep. And um, these are students that I haven't like taught before, you know, and as a teacher, part of that is it's, it's if you don't have the connection and the relationship, you've got to spend time, you know, building upon that. And as you find out more about the students, you can um, integrate that and give them more guiding questions as well. Yeah. But yeah, that's that idea of being right or being perfect about something, um, I think is something that we have to break. And, you know, that's something that I'm guilty of as well. Yeah. Uh, absolutely can be trapped by certain perfectionist tendencies, you know, in, in doing anything. And as a teacher, I've had to learn that I've had to model that I don't always necessarily know yep. uh, something or I'm not necessarily good at writing a particular uh, brief for something or uh, working on even um, when I first started doing media interviews, I got quite nervous, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, I shared that with my students. And I said, you know, it's about tolerating uncertainty. It's about being able to uh, look at these traits. And at our school, we've been informed by the work of Dr. Belukas mm -hmm. uh, and Ellen Spencer at the University of Winchester, mm -hmm. and really looking at their model of creativity, which is based around, uh, it's, a, it's like there's five key traits. Being inquisitive is one, mm -hmm. being imaginative being collaborative, mm -hmm. being persistent, mm -hmm. and being disciplined. Mm -hmm. So they've got it as a wheel, and our school has adopted that wheel, and then there's sub-traits that go with those. And we've actually aligned them to specific teaching strategies to be able to cultivate that. So it's a framework that we talk about. We have a common language, but teachers have absolute agency in the way that they integrate that into their lessons. But by having that language uh, and being able to talk to students, uh, we had to get really comfortable with what that looked like for us yeah so yeah. we spend a lot of time and we do it even now like years since we first introduced this way of thinking to reflect on our own strengths mm -hmm. and uh tolerating uncertainty you know when i remember looking at that wheel i like that was mm. one of the sub dispositions i was like oh I, that's not something i'm good at yeah i can tell you absolutely with this uh, experience of the global teacher prize and all of the skills that i've learned with doing media and doing various things and mm -hmm. um being absolutely put into context where i didn't know what was going to happen I now think that's one of my strengths, and I say that to my students. And especially with seniors, you know, they, they're often like, oh, all of these unknowns, they don't know what they want to do when they leave school, they're not sure if they're going to get the right ATAR, they, they don't know if they'll get into different pathways, and uh, I think, you know, that language is just as useful in the extracurricular uh, and development of students and the mentoring of students that isn't necessarily linked to your subject area as it is with your actual subjects as yeah, well. Yeah, and I think this it's, it's triggering triggering me into this conversation I had in back in season two with a uh, year eleven student from Hillcrest Christian, and um, they have this pedagogy in their school called flurning, which is not a word I've heard outside of this their, their school context, and which is embracing failing forward yes. or failure learning which is that uncertainty. And it's okay not to know the answer. It's okay to mess up. But it's an iterative process. You evolve, you change, you keep going. Yeah. And how you adapt, how you um, put yourself through those changes, I think that's where the important mindset approach is. And it's almost like it's part of the growth mindset. 
and I love that. Like so, this is this is where I think what you're saying is also fitting in. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, you mentioned guiding questions. So rather than giving them the answer, yes. So this is very much the same practice that I follow at at a tertiary level, where I don't. They'll come to me with a question like, "How do you do this on Revit in in an architectural context?" Mm-hmm. or What's the section on the building code that I need to go look this up? I'm like, well, we can look at it together. Or I actually don't know. How about we find the answer together? So how do you see this difference between the old school way of teaching, if for the lack of a better term, and facilitation? What do you think is required for the future of education? Well, I actually think um, there's facilitation and there still is a need for explicit approaches. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to say that we can't just put people like into these sort of big picture questions without yeah. actually modelling how we would answer that ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, as a teacher, it might be having some questions and then also having like a model response ready mm-hmm. um, to use with the students that, that just need to see an example mm-hmm. um, and to be able to like meet students where they are, uh, especially if they're students with uh, literacy um, as, as a focus and showing them what the kind of vocabulary should be to actually integrate into mm-hmm. their responses as well. So yeah. everything is like an opportunity to, to teach multiple skills. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's very much a place for explicit teaching and modelling, but that doesn't necessarily take away from guiding thinking and questions because it's it's a process. So mm-hmm. even to be able to uh, be successful with the class with using strategies like uh, we use a lot of the Harvard Visible Thinking routines, mm-hmm. and uh, the first time you try one, it's, it's a bit of a mess usually mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you have to set up a protocol around it. The students like, you know, don't know that it's, they've got this freedom. They might need to show them an example, like for, you know, like it could be the same topic or a different topic. Yeah. And then they'll go, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, I can do it. And then you, you might try the same routine another in, in a different way uh, and then they know how to do it. So it's like the routines as a teacher are just as important mm. uh, to be able to transition effectively within your own lesson yeah. and guide students to... Um, be able to do what like they can do, but also extend questions as well. And that's where I think uh, le- lesson design is very, very important. So mm. we, we talk a lot about you know what makes effective learning and like big picture learning. So as teachers, we'll have our uh, programs yeah. that we work on, our units of work, um, but then every single teacher will make, um, they'll modify that work uh, and adapt it to suit the needs of their class. And I work at a comprehensive high school, so we have a big range uh, from like our students, from supported students to our extension classes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that very much that team program is, is a starting point. It's a base that we all work on, but what how we translate that into our own lessons, we're very much is going to be different and guided by the students yeah. who are in front of us. Yeah. Now, this is a question that kept popping up in my head while you were speaking. These are terminologies that relate to design thinking. Do you call creative thinking design thinking or is that a different terminology from your point of view? Design thinking has come up a lot in professional learning and uh, we have used that term. uh, There's a team at our school that's running our entrepreneurial learning program, for example, Mm -hmm. and students actually explicitly use a design thinking process to, to ideate and come up with uh, multiple options and then yeah. choose what their focus is going to be and we definitely have taken ideas from that in various approaches but what is unique 
at our school, I think, um, and it's probably the case for many schools, Mm -hmm. is we don't just subscribe to one pedagogy. Mm -hmm. So there's different faculties, you know, incorporating project-based learning. There's other ones using inquiry-based as a history teacher and society and culture teacher. At the moment, that's like a lot of the approaches that guide what goes on in in our classes um, and in in my own classroom. Um, But really looking at where it fits for for our particular disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so what we aim to do, and uh, I guess my teaching reflects as well, is looking at innovative ways of uh, embedding and cultivating capabilities and dispositions, mm-hmm. but within a subject lens. Yeah, yeah. I think that's valuable advice. And this actually takes me to that next question. Because we have teachers listening in and educators different different levels, some are in that primary level, some are secondary and tertiary, do you have any advice on how these skills can be cultivated? So the inquiry-based learning, the project-based learning, um, what do you call it, the facilitation, the guided techniques that you mentioned before. How can these teachers learn as they go and cultivate these skills as an educator? I think it's really, really important that we need to stress that teachers have the time to mm-hmm. be able to go out on professional learning and to collaborate and then to really bring back that to their own context and context is important so what works in you know our school or for our students may not necessarily work for another mm-hmm. and uh, in terms of looking for ideas I'd absolutely recommend it at a classroom level starting with something like the Harvard visible thinking routines they're very very practical uh, there's lots of resources online uh, and they just give you some very um, clear ideas on how you can make thinking more visible uh, mm-hmm. in your classroom yeah and that's something that you can just sort of, as a teacher, pick up and run with, even as a, an educator at different levels. You can use them as well. There's protocols uh, to use around that too, and we've used them in teacher professional learning. But to be able to embed that across uh, a team of teachers or beyond, whatever we're doing with our students, we need to be practicing and modelling ourselves. So that's how we can equip um, us to really be able to model and be explicit in the way that we do things yeah. is we're going to be more comfortable if we can do it. Mm, absolutely. And are there any books that you can recommend or articles or podcasts or anything that like oh, that, that you can... There's so many, <laughs> so many, but I can recommend, uh, there's a short case study on how uh, Rudy Hill High School, where I work, has really started their journey and how they're on critical and creative thinking and capabilities. Mm-hmm. And it was published by the Australian Learning Lecture. Mm-hmm. So if you Google Australian Learning Lecture, Rudy Hill High School, um, the building critical skills case study will come up. Um, there'll be some footage in there from a couple of years ago with mm-hmm. my year nine class that I'm in um, with some colleagues as well. But it just shows basically how the, the biggest lesson that we have learned uh, with this initiative and others that we have embedded in our school is whatever we want to cultivate in our students, we need to cultivate with our staff and our teams as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's brilliant. And if, if you had to follow um, any mentors in, in the education sector, do you have any uh, recommendations? Oh, mentors. Um, do you mean like personally or for people to Any. follow? Um, it might be online, might be actually someone they could reach out to. So uh, for me, in my own school context, my mentors have absolutely been um, my principal and deputies and a lot of colleagues and beyond the school too, uh, been part of various networks. So uh, I'm actually an executive on the Australian Curriculum Studies Association. They run a lot of professional learning for teachers that is really about looking at the heart of curriculum issues and what is current. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the biggest advice I can say for teachers is to get involved in uh, associations, whether it's like a a general one in terms of leadership or curriculum or your particular subject, um, and informal associations as well. So the second biggest driver apart from my school and in terms of external networks has been uh, the Teach Meet network which is like a 
traditional unconference mm-hmm. in terms of how it started and very organic. It's by teachers for teachers. They sort of, they sort of pop up at the side of conferences as well. But the idea is anyone can organise one. You have a theme. It could be in a pub. Mm-hmm. It could be at a school. You could have it more formal. But they're short, snappy presentations. Some of them have been deeper, but it's just about building your networks. And uh, Twitter is quite useful for that as well. There's also Absolutely. chats that happen on Twitter with various yeah. themes. Yeah. Uh, even if you can't join at the time, uh, you can always catch up looking at relevant hashtags. And so there's just a wealth of things out there. And I think uh, for me, being introduced to some ideas that I find interesting have actually come from international teachers just posting what they're doing. Um, and it's yeah, one of my goals for 2020 to, mm-hmm. to tweet more and, and share more as well. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, there you go. And I think what I, wanted, I always ask this from my speakers is, do you have any advice for students and grads listening in? Because um, given the different um, speakers that I've had on the show, there are a lot of student followings as well. So do you have any advice for them, whether they're in law, whether they're in business, whether they're whatever they're studying or their industry? Do you have any advice for them? Absolutely. I think as educators, we see students leave us at the end of year 12. And one of the most rewarding things is actually seeing where they end up. And sometimes it can be totally different. And if you're just at the end of whatever discipline or degree you've decided to study or an apprenticeship, is to know that especially in the, in the age that we're living in, you're not going to necessarily just have one career and to be open to different contexts. So even if like myself, you know, I have worked at the same school for 10 years, but the experiences I've had in to do a lot of other things have come from being involved in external networks and uh, change the, change things around, you know, mm. see what actually um, is interesting you at a particular point in time uh, because then you're going to end up being really good at it. So start with your strengths. At the same time, if there's something that you want to overcome, and I'll use the example of um, media being quite scary for mm-hmm. me at the start, like work on it. Um, that's just something that, you know, there's there's things that will pop up and you might have never imagined that was going to happen. I definitely didn't think I was going to be winning like a teaching fellowship mm. uh, and let alone what happened with the Global Teacher Prize. Yeah. And uh, some people will say, you know, uh, there's a time, and I've needed this advice, where you have to say no to things because yep. you just literally can't do them all and you'll make yourself unwell or yep. something, you know, you'll burn out. Uh, that has happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other situations, and uh, especially with what's happened to me in the last year, I've pretty much said yes to a lot of things and then working out how I can do it. Awesome. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I guess uh, it's you, you meet people, there's opportunities that come up. I've also absolutely got the advice from mentors uh, and things as well, but really looking at uh, what I can do outside uh, and to be able to advocate, but also bring that back and how does that benefit my students. And sharing sharing this journey has definitely been um, really, really positive, especially for my seniors. They find it really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll have you 12 when I get back to school this afternoon. I'm speaking to you and they'll, they'll be like, what did you do today? Because yeah. they know that my week is very different very different yeah. yeah and i find it fascinating yeah. which which is odd even in the holidays i was at um I was using the last of my fellowship in marrakesh at the international school school effectiveness and improvement mm-hmm. and i had got messages from my u12 saying could they look at the presentations online awesome so i was like yeah okay um <laughs> I, I just didn't expect yeah yeah them to be so um invested yeah. and interested but it's uh i think it's just amazing to see the the networks you can have and don't confine yourself to just working in, in your field because there's so many connections, there's so many stakeholders in like mm. every industry. Education is definitely one that benefits from partnerships yep. with business and other people and tertiary sector and being able to really uh, look at how we can work together to create yep. uh, meaningful opportunities that help us all grow. Yeah, yeah. So things I go to with my students, you know, I learn as well when it's an extracurricular opportunity, and yeah, I think it's just 
amazing to see. And lastly, apply for professional opportunities and look out if you can encourage others to do so as well. Yeah. I think that's valuable advice and I think your year 12s are very lucky to have you and while you were speaking what went through my head was who was that person when I went through high school and I feel like I need to mention uh, Phil Reed's name mm-hmm. he's awesome he was he's, he's one of your teachers he was yeah. my favorite teacher I think I, I actually yeah he he was my guiding I think I look at him as a mentor rather than the subject teacher he was a manual arts teacher at the time and oh boy did we have some interesting cricket conversations and it was during the time when Sri Lanka lost um, the World Cup final to the Aussies that was not fun (laughs) but I still love him to death and I think his guidance on how my studies got shaped I think molded my mindset even though I didn't know it was happening at the time so I think I'm eternally grateful for him. (laughs) Like and I think I've been really fortunate as a teacher to have um, those sort of mentoring uh, like student-teacher relationships with students I haven't even taught in class mm. through extracurricular. Yeah. And sometimes that's been one of the most rewarding parts of the job as well is just to be able to, to lead a particular program and, and learn from that. Um, and then one of the most rewarding things, I guess, now more in like leadership is to see things that you have started be run by somebody else yeah. and to be able to mentor others to do things that you've done and, um, yeah, like... Pave able, the path. Like just to be able to go, oh, that's something that I found really, really hard and now I'm helping somebody else do it or yeah. I'm mentoring them on how to do it. And so we're always learning in whatever we do. I think uh, th- there was an awesome Denzel Washington speech um, at one of the universities where he actually said the importance in education is actually learning and then reaching back and then pulling someone forward with you. So yes. it's exactly that. Absolutely. And that actually embeds your skills and learning more by doing that. So it's, it's a good karma project that just keeps... Keeps going forward. I love that. I love it's that. addictive. It's it yeah. <laughs> people in education just yeah, we work hard. Like, yeah. A lot of people work hard in really a lot of industries, but I think it's often why people can can burn out and you've got to be careful with managing well being because it's very easy to put you just by nature you put other people ahead of yourself. Yeah. And yeah, it's always need to have those well being reminders as well. Yeah. There you go guys. That was valuable insights and Yasudai, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Guys, that's it for today and it has been one of the most inspiring conversations and a lot of takeaways from from even myself personally and I have no doubt that most of you guys will have a lot of takeaways from today whether you are an educator or even a student or even a professional listening in. So if you haven't been inspired already, uh, jump on to roshansenanayaka.com forward slash podcast and check out the show notes from today's episode and click on the direct links to check out the amazing work that Yasodai is doing in education. Feel free to also reach out to her on Twitter at Yasodai Selva and her LinkedIn account and make sure you deep dive into this amazing lady's work. So lastly, before I leave, click subscribe and feel free to share your thoughts and feedback about the topic and the discussion for today's episode. So till next time.